Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. to Basic Folk. This is a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy House, and I am recording this in the past. Uh, uh, it is Friday, October 16th. This is being released on Thursday, November 5th, which is a couple of days after the United States election. So I don't know... How we're all feeling right now, whether we are needing a distraction or if we are celebrating. But regardless of the situation, I hope you are taking care of yourselves and uh, taking care of each other. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking to Lori McKenna. She is on Basic Folk talking about her new album, The Balladeer. Lori's been a huge part of the New England folk circuit for over two decades, and for the last 10 or so years, has been a much in-demand songwriter in Nashville thanks to Faith Hill, Tim McGraw, and Mary Gaucher. Lori grew up and still lives in Stoughton, Massachusetts, and if you're keeping track at home, that is where the IKEA is. And she talks about her complicated relationship with her hometown and discovering how her home life is the secret ingredient to her incredible writing. Lori's a great storyteller, so we get a lot of stories about her brothers and sister, her dad, her husband, her kids, and of course, Mandy Moore. Lori talks about developing her confidence in songwriting. She didn't leave the house, actually, with her music until she was in her late 20s, even though she'd been writing since she was a young teen. She talks about the first song she ever wrote and played for, for her brother, actually, about a rodeo. It was the late 70s. She had never experienced a rodeo, never been exposed to rodeos, still has no idea where that came from. And I did the math to even make sure she couldn't have absorbed it from any Garth Brooks rodeo songs, which I think there's at least 10. From there, Lori just wrote to express herself, and the new album is filled with personal songs, as well as one character song, which happens to be the title track. Lori McKenna gives us insights into her process, how this new record uh, was made. And a personal note, Lori McKenna is a songwriting giant who has been hugely important and historical in my life. So it was an absolute honor to have her on the podcast. We're going to take a listen to one of the songs from uh, Lori's new album, The Balladeer. And in fact, it is the title track, that character song that we were talking about. So uh, let's check this out, and then we'll get to our conversation with the incredible Lori McKenna on Basic Folk. The balladeer waits in the wings Tugging on a just to strings 
All the whiskey faded cigarette blown dreams She brings herself to her own knees With every line so delicate She sings every song that she knows The way that she hears them sad and slow They're never gonna play her on the radio So she hangs in the darkest bars With downtrodden bleeding hearts A guitar man there who knew all the chords Said he needed her to help him find the words Okay, Lauren McKenna. Hi. Thanks so much for being on Basic Folk. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, before we begin, I just want to thank you for uh, when I was a freshman in college, I only listened to two albums, and one of them was Ani DeFranco, and the other one was Paper Wings and Halo. Oh, wow. Over and over and over and over again. (laughs) It has, I feel like it has the same effect as like if I put the Little Mermaid soundtrack on. Like just brain, like nostalgia. That really, that stuff works, man. (laughs) Yeah. You really kept me company during a very weird and dark time. Oh. So well, thank you. Um, well, I'm glad that I kept you company, but I'm sorry that you had a weird and dark time, but I'm glad you threw it now. Oh, yeah. Well, freshman year of college, as you may uh, know with all of your kids, mm-hmm. can be, like, pretty challenging. Yeah. 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 All right. You were born and raised in Stoughton, Massachusetts, which is actually 10 miles from my hometown of Walpole. Wow. And I want to say that you and I have like very different perspectives about our hometowns. I moved away from mine as soon as I could and don't ever want to live there again. But you have lived in Stoughton your entire life. What do you love about your town and what has kept you there? It's funny. My relationship with this town has, um, it's like a marriage. It's had its ups and downs and it's had its points where I totally would have, you know, signed divorce papers with, with the town of Stoughton, Massachusetts, if I, (laughs) if it was easily, if it was an easy divorce. But, um, but yeah, we've sort of just, we've, we've, come a long way together and I was that kid in high school that was like I'm getting out of here you know uh and I just it just never I just never did it and um I think that uh mostly my reasons were family you know my dad I could walk to my dad's house I can walk to the house that Jean grew up my husband grew up in and that his family doesn't live there anymore but my dad's still in his house and my brother Richie lives on the road I you know that we grew up on he uh, bought a house on that same street so I have family surrounding me everywhere but by the time I was probably confident confident enough to move out of this town you know, and like just take off and go, like I would have gone to Nashville, say, is I had kids in school. I had kids, like I always had kids in the school system somewhere. Yeah. And I didn't want to pull them out. Hmm. Um, But now I've really, you know, um, there's a lot of great people that live here. Um, I have some just dear friends that live right around the corner from me at any direction. So I've really come to appreciate Stoughton and and uh and all of its good and bad and you know all of its changes and as Marcarelli will tell you I I've gotten a lot of songs out of this town so I probably <laughs> owe it I probably owe Stoughton Mass more than it owes me at this point. Your family was all musical 
growing up. So what was the scene like at your house when it came to playing music? Yeah, so I'm the youngest in my family, and everybody um, played at least, you know, piano. My brother Richie um, played guitar, so I sort of followed along with him. My other siblings all were pretty much piano-based. I wish I learned piano younger, but I didn't. Um, I just took to the guitar, but it was just always music playing in the house. And we, we have a really tight family, and we were really tight when we were kids, and we've stayed really tight as adults, and it was just it was, it was just part of the family. Can you talk about the family piano? Yeah, the but well, the family piano is a, a console piano that's still at my dad's house. But the strange thing about my family is, um, well, I guess it's not that strange. But we all, uh, you know, there's six of us. I have five siblings, and we all have at least one piano in our house. You have two in this, actually three. Well, that I, I can see behind yeah, you. There's a keyboard here and uh, and a little piano that is actually that's a baby piano. It only um, it's from like the 30s, but it was made for kids. And um, oh. and I have a piano upstairs. I we have a piano in Nashville. My kids have a piano in Nashville. Like every time somebody moved in my family, they're like, "How can I find a cheap or free piano?" <laughs> um, but we all have pianos. Like it's like we it it was a big part of. It had to have been a big part of our childhood for us all to really need a piano in our houses when we became adults. Can you speak to like the connection to that instrument? I think it's just because you can just sit down. You can, well, you can just sit down at it and take a seat. You don't have to play it, right? <laughs> but it's just always right there. I think the fact that the piano is so big and the one that you're looking at is obviously in my writing room, but the one that upstairs we have a a, a U3 upstairs, a Yamaha, that is right at the end of the dining table. You know what I mean? It's just right there at any given moment. You can just sit and pluck away at it for a second and then walk away. And um, it's funny because my, um, my husband, who doesn't play an instrument at all, grew up next to uh, a music teacher. And so when I dust the piano or like one of the kids just walk by and like hit the keys, it's like one of his favorite things. And he didn't even have a <laughs> piano in his house. I think it just becomes part of the family. They have spirits, you know, like yeah. guitars have spirits too, for sure. And we have guitars everywhere. We're spoiled, you know, that we get to have instruments lying around. But I think the piano just was such a big part of, I always remember coming home and my brother is playing piano. You talk about your mom quite a bit and she passed away when you were seven and she played the piano not to make this entire interview about the piano but <laughs> I was wondering like what happened after that for the piano like how the instrument was treated like immediately after I don't really remember that much about sort of how the dynamic of my house would, would have changed in those years after like right after she passed away but because um, my brother Donald and my brother Bob, who's those are my two oldest brothers, were big piano players, I'm sure it was just still filled with that. You know, my dad didn't play, but my dad walked around and sang a lot. You know, music is such a way to express your feelings, even if, even if you're not a writer, even if you're just a music lover. It's just such a way to express yourselves. And I think that um, even though I don't specifically remember those times, I remember, I just remember my brothers playing when they would get home from work. And I remember when the piano tuner, Mr. Watts, would come over. It was like always a big deal, like the tuner is here. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was a, there was a missing of her in that instrument, you know, like that um, that she wasn't there to play it. But my brothers really filled that void. Hmm. Your mom's presence in your life and influence has been very strong for you, even though um, she passed away. And I read that you used to pray to your mom when you were a little kid, and you've written about her a lot. What do you do in your daily life these days to stay connected to her, and how do you work to keep your own kids connected to her? Well, it's, um, you know, I think just because I've had so many years of working on that, I feel like I do, I I feel like um, I feel very connected. I feel very connected to her because I, you know, because it's been, it's been so many years at this point. But I, I also do work on it. You know, I had this great opportunity at the beginning of this year in February to go and be part of this, um, this Nashville community of people in the music business were invited to this retreat that was very like group therapy based and I had never done anything like that oh wow and uh it was really beautiful and um kind of life-changing and we we all got I was surprised that we got time we had time to do this but we all had um a, a moment that that was focused on whatever we wanted to focus on so um we had gone to all these seminars and all these things and I and I realized like oh I feel like my grief my grief process with my mom has been sort of healthy and done because I've written so many songs about her Uh, and then I got there and I was like oh maybe that's why maybe it's not done and that's why I keep writing songs (laughs) about her oh that's what I'm doing and so I got to focus on that a little bit and really had um like a beautiful experience um in that and sort of um, realizing that I do I do really feel connected to my mother and I think in the way I do it is through music um, because that's sort of the way I conduct all my emotions is through music um, but I feel like because I do music for a living I'm really blessed in the way that I can spend so much time on something that has would otherwise be just be such a hole you know like be such mm. a gap for me you know we I, people always tease like I, I keep writing the same song over and over again so it's funny I, I I do try to stay away from the death theme sometimes but it just keeps creeping back <laughs> it creeps back happens well you know what Lori it happens to everyone <laughs> I just can't help it <laughs> the guitar you wanted to play guitar like Richie mm-hmm what drew you to the guitar other than, you know, Richie played it? And what has your relationship been like with the instrument and how has it evolved? The thing about the guitar for me, I guess my thought process was that the music that I was listening to when I was, I was at old enough to, t- I was probably past the point where I could take lessons, but I was like 13 when and normally you would hope to start maybe a little sooner. But um, by the time I could figure out how to get a ride to a music class, I was 13. <laughs> You know, it's like 12 or 13. Normally, you know, kids, younger kids would take music class right after school, and I could never do that because I didn't have a ride. So when I was old enough to take a night music class, like a 7 p.m., because I was old enough to stay up late for that, I I was drawn to guitar by that point because I was sort of spending a lot of time listening to what Richie listened to, which was Neil Young and James Taylor. You know, like it was guitar-based music. 
So I figured, oh, he plays guitar, and it, it doesn't seem impossible, which, of course, it is, but, you know, when you're that age, especially. But um, I just followed him. I just followed him along. I want to hear more about how your dad loves musicals. Oh, my Does dad. He still, yes. Like, would he go around the house singing them? And does he still like musicals? I think he likes um, opera and classical music, but he was really studied in the musicals. And I think it was something that he he could do. He could, like, sort of play around the house that we didn't roll our eyes at too much, you know, as much as the classical music. Uh, But he, my dad is the type of singer that, like, vacuums and sings. You know that guy? That, like, (laughs) the vacuums so loud that he thinks that you can't hear him, like, singing Man of La Mancha like at the top of his lungs and that's when he instead of like being a shower singer he was like a clean the house singer <laughs> did he work for Boston Edison he did yeah for, yeah forever so yeah. when I yeah I read that he loved musicals it was it's just yeah. like that those two things don't necessarily fit together but yeah I know I love a it. computer guy at Boston Edison that loves musicals maybe it does <laughs> You started writing songs in elementary school. How did it feel when you wrote your first song? And can you compare it to like how you feel now after you've written a song? Well, that's such a good question, man. Um, I remember that the first couple of songs that I showed anybody were very like domestic, like country-ish songs. And I remember my brothers being really surprised that the song sounded so country um, and because I didn't grow up listening to country music at all. But looking back, I, I actually, I, I think, first of all, I think it was about, a, there was a rodeo involved in this song and mm-hmm. I had never been to a rodeo or seen a rodeo. So that, that's probably where everyone kept coming up with the word country. But it was also this like love triangle between a woman, a man, and the rodeo. So, and I was quite young. I was probably like 10 or 11. And so I think that they were all like, what's wrong with Laurie? There was some, you know, listening to uh, UMB, because my brother did, you know, back, but I don't even know if it was that age, you know, um, that we listened. But I just listened to the stuff that he was playing on his record player. <laughs> and that's what I delivered. And they were like, what's wrong with this child? She's writing songs about <laughs> love triangles, and there's a rodeo involved. So... It all makes sense now, but but as far as like, well, how did I feel when I wrote that versus how do I feel now? It's probably very similar, to be honest. It's probably like I just love songs. I just love it. You mentioned WUMB and radio played a big part for you for being introduced to songwriters. Um, and WUMB is UMass Boston's public radio station. Uh, when we were first talking about you coming on the podcast, it was... Um, Chris Delmhorst was there and Mark Morelli mm-hmm. was there and they were both talking about Chris being on the podcast talking about her experience with Casey Kasem and the <laughs> oh, and the taping the top 40 and yes. then lying to Casey Kasem in a letter because she wanted to get a journey song on tape anyways so I wanted to know about like your experience listening to the radio and your connection to the radio yeah, I mean, it's funny. I do remember recording songs off the radio, like 100%. Remember that from high school and um, taping songs. And um, Was it from WUMB? No, I think by then it would have been... In, that, in those days, it would have been probably 
whatever, not pop, but whatever, like, the singer's song, right? I cannot remember even, but, or maybe the top, you know, pop radio back then. I don't even know, but that story, first of all, the idea of Chris Delmore's actually lying to someone is beyond my comprehension because she's, like, the sweetest, <laughs> kindest person. <laughs> I'm sure it's the only lie she's ever told in her life, but um, <laughs> I love it that it was based around music and her need for it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I when I discovered that there was other music, you know, but like this this really different music was starting to seep in when I started paying attention. And my brothers had... I mean, all of my brothers had, you know, a, a pretty, you know, well-stocked library of, at that point, it was records and and a little bit of cassettes, but it was records, you know, and I would, um, I would, I would sit with my brother and listen to whatever he was listening to, and, um, and I think, I still love radio, I still love all sorts of radio, people make fun of me sometimes, but I still love it, and, um, and I still love sort of discovering um, songs that I've never heard before for the first time. I think that's, you know, part of why we all love music. How much older is Richie than you? He's 10 years older than me. Oh, what a nice brother. Yeah. All my, si- like my siblings are great. I'm, I lucked out for sure. Yeah. So there's Marie, Richie, Donald, Bobby, and then What's the other? David. <laughs> David. David's that was the one I didn't know. Yeah, he's the one that like always misses the pictures when we're at like the wedding and we do the group picture. We can't ever find David. He's like the the snuffleupagus of the group. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, you met your husband Gene in the third grade, and you married him when you were nineteen. Mm. I don't know if you remember meeting him, but what do you remember about? knowing that he was like the person that you wanted to marry at such a young age making that decision well I think I actually do remember meeting him early on and the reason I think I remember in like third grade walking down the hallway is it was a moment where when um it was just the two of us in the hallway and we were walking across from each other and I for some reason I don't have a great memory and for some reason I remember that And I remember thinking, oh, there's that kid that always, like, sticks up for the kids that are getting bullied. Because Gene was, like, always, like, the bigger kid. He's not very tall, but when he was little, he was, he's stocky, you know? And and he had the reddest, curly red hair, freckles, I think glasses. His name's Eugene. I mean, (laughs) just, (laughs) and there I am, like, um, walking down the hall across from him thinking, oh, there's that really nice kid. And we really didn't, um, we didn't hang out until we were in high school, even though we lived right right around the corner from each other. Um, We knew each other, but we didn't hang out until high school. And and I don't know, I just don't really remember much about life before Gene was in it, to be honest. Mm. I also don't remember life before I had kids. (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk about Gene's feelings about your work and your career and how they may have evolved over time? Gene has been um, really good in the way that he is not an editor of what I do. And um, I think there was so many years. um, So when I, when we started dating, let's say we were like 16, I had been writing songs since I was, you know, around 11, 12 in there somewhere. 
writing songs, then learning how to play guitar, and then putting them together. Just always since I was a little kid. So he knew that that was what like something I did all those years before I left the house with music. But it was never like something that I you know said someday I'm going to be a songwriter or someday I'm going to make a record and be an artist. Um, so when we got married, that wasn't like a discussion at all. And there was so many years I think of him not editing me that when I did start leaving the house and did start sharing music outside of myself, it never clicked in for him to be like, should you say that? Or people think you're talking about me. Like, should that, should you really write the bird and the rifle? Because people are going to think I'm the rifle and you're the bird. I'm like, no, it's fine. Or, you know, does, <laughs> does every character have to have a drinking problem? Things like that, that I think that um, somebody else may have tried to edit what I was saying or tried to like just look too much into it as in like are we okay are we he always knows that if there's a problem between the two of us I'm surely not gonna explain it to him in song it it, it mm. just will not come that way uh it will be it will be presented in a different manner so when I write songs even if they are really sad or they seem even if there is a personal part to it um, he knows it isn't truly just me and him, you know? And so he's been great as far as that piece, which is huge for me because the songwriting is my favorite part of all this. Everything else that has come along along the way, he's either been a trooper about when it came to, like, me traveling a lot or being gone, or he's been my greatest cheerleader about being like, yeah, you should try that, you know? And... Um, not to say that we, I don't get out of balance sometimes and he go, he gets mad at me about being out of balance. But, um, I mean, I think that's unavoidable, you know, he's pretty much been a really good, um, enjoy, he's enjoyed the process, I think. On, uh, confidence and self-worth when it came to songwriting, you said, I battled with confidence issues. I didn't know I was worthy of doing it outside my house for the most part. I've been so lucky that the music sort of pulled me. Um, when you started performing out in your late 20s, you started doing open mics, you had three kids at the time. Where did you feel the most confident and worthy? And how have you seen your confidence for and worth as a songwriter grow? My confidence issues have really formed a lot of what I've done when and I think that sometimes probably early on when I would say oh no I can't do that it would be like oh I can't do that because I have little kids and it's too hard for me to do that where which is which is true and that works on paper but there was probably a lot of like I don't know if I'm capable of doing that <laughs> involved mm. in that so I, I did always take a step forward like every, I always did sort of stick my neck out, I felt like, confidence-wise and push myself into doing things. And I did have people along the way that would push me, which was great. But I also always had this this backup of saying, oh, I can't really do that because I don't have time to do it because I'm raising this family, which, of course, was always the, the number one goal anyway. But they kind of went hand in hand. I still feel like I work on confidence issues but I it was really wasn't until I got to Nashville and I started 
I started working with other artists, like, you know, these big artists that wanted to work with me in, in songwriting or wanted to have me along on the road to help with what they were feeling and sort of thought, well, if they're, you know, they they have all these songwriters at their disposal and they're asking me to be involved, then I must be okay at this. It must be. It's like, <laughs> it's kept me, you know, out of trouble all this time. Every, I mean, I'm, I'm always kind of amazed that I get to do it. I still am amazed that I get to do it. Hmm. But I think my confidence has grown. Bottom line is my confidence has grown, but it's, it's, um, it's still something that I have to talk to myself about. Kind of on the opposite of that, a common theme throughout your career has been you following the music, listening to people saying, hey, Laura, you should do this. And then, I mean, I'm sure there have been times where people say, hey, Laura, you should do this. And you're like, no, thanks. <laughs> but where does that leave your ownership of your successes and creative accomplishments? Sure. Well, my ownership really is in the is in the work part of it, because I've had so much luck. I've had so much. I've been lucky by those people that said you should try this and those you know, and like even living living near Passim, for example, you know, and having a, a community like the Boston community. Um, and I've, I, I've been so lucky just from the get-go and all that, but then luckier with like Faith Hill hearing my record and wanting to cut some songs and things like that. That luck has always followed me, but the luck only will work for so long. And at some point you have to you have to do the work. I, I feel like I've always done the work. My ownership has been in, I've always done the work and I've always tried to get better at it. And that might be where the confidence pushes back a little bit. Whereas like, I know, I may not, I know that I may not be as good as the other person in the room, but I can, I can work my hardest at being as good as I can be. And um, and I've just always, I, because I love the work, I've always d done. I just, you know, I think I just try to do a lot, a lot of work behind it. Try to grow and try to be a student of the craft and follow mm. the craft. What do they call that? You've got spirit. <laughs> I've got spirit. <laughs> Mary Gaucher was the one that started playing your music for people in Nashville. Um, and you two had met in Boston and you kind of came up at the same time but she was the one that kind of started planting your music in Nashville and then Faith Hill got her hands on it and then your life really changed what does that friendship with Mary mean to you especially like when you guys were first coming up what did you what did you like about each other yeah Mary and I did she was always a few steps ahead of me when I started doing like open mics like I would show up to an open mic and she would be the feature you know and things like that and I was kind of, I would kind of watch her we were always a little bit older than everybody else there and um she's about seven years older than you yeah is she right? that much I don't know I don't know how old she I is. looked it up on Wikipedia oh is that what Wikipedia said yeah, yeah I don't know but she was always like it was like Mary would kind of stick out I would stick out because I'm like showing up like in a minivan and like, <laughs> like mom clothes with, like peanut butter and jelly on my guitar case and things like that and then there'd be all these younger people that like were just you know in college or you know just starting out and we kind of always stuck out like two sore thumbs in a way but I always watched her and the thing 
Mary has taught me many lessons, but one of the greatest is that is that growth because every time Mary made a record, it was much better than the record before. Like she just gets better and better and better and better, and she finds herself more and more and more in everything that she does. It was from watching her. You know, I remember Mary early on. I remember Chris, the, Chris Delmer, so, as we talked about earlier, who I love so much early on. And we have the same birthday, Chris and I. I'm two years older than oh. her. Yeah. and um, Birthday twins. Birthday twins. And I just went the first time. I remember the first time meeting Chris. My perspective of a young person meeting Chris was like, God, this girl oozes with talent. And then when I met Mary, it was like, wow, this woman's amazing, and she's working her butt off to figure this thing out that she wants to do. My brain would have always just said, you either have the talent or you don't, but Mary taught me that you don't know, talent-wise, you don't know what you have until you, until you pull it out. Like, you have, to, you have to work, and you have to just, Mary, just, she's my guardian angel. I literally just talked to her, texted back and forth with her a bunch yesterday. I just love, love, love Mary. Um, and she has been such a good friend. She's the person that will call you and say, hey, man, I had a dream the other night about you, and I was just calling to check on you. And you, like, in the middle, you're in the middle of something, and you need a friend to call. Mary's the one that will call you. She's extraordinary. Awesome. The thing that people like about your music are the themes of family and domesticity. That's a hard word to say. It is. Domesticity. I I wouldn't even try. You shouldn't even be a word. (laughs) And your home life is the thing that grounds you and is kind of like the secret to your songwriting. And apparently this is something you say took a while for you to figure out. What was that process like and how did that realization change you? I think that when you first, when I first started out, you know, people would say, write what you know, write what you know, write what you know, and I guess for a while, I didn't know, you know, anything. (laughs) I guess in the very beginning, I didn't know that much at all, and um, I think because, like, I talk about Gene being not an editor and not truly listening maybe to everything I say my kids surely don't listen to everything I say all right but I think having not having somebody on my back saying what are you are you sharing too much are you are you like do you have to pull everything out you know I think that along with finding what I liked in songs what drew me into other people's songs when they say these kind of strange really personal things in your ear pops up like what did they say that doesn't sound like it should be in a song. That sounds like a conversation. And finding out the things that I liked, I just settled into it. You know, now I have to watch myself because I think we probably have talked about this before that, like, I love the word kitchen, <laughs> you know, and it's like, I can't have it in every song. You can't put the word kitchen in every song. Um, but I am I am drawn back to the same things, you know, like every conversation that I can think of that I had with a family member or in a, in a in a joyful moment or a really sad moment, those things happen in a kitchen. Like, why can't we put the kitchen in the song? And it's like, <laughs> not everyone, you know? I mean, I'm conscious of it, and I try to watch myself that I need to find other characters. I need to, like, think outside of my own little bubble sometimes. But I'm so domestic because I'm so domestic. <laughs> I mean, I think that's just it. <laughs> I'm just in that world. 
what is your experience like in terms of like feminism? I don't know if you consider yourself a feminist um, and what have your thoughts been on like the evolution of the movement? You know, I don't know that much about the movement as far as historically because I probably um, have been, again, that bubble, you know, that I've realized this year especially I'm in such a bubble, you know, and, and probably haven't spent enough time knowing uh, what women have gone through or the, the steps they've had to take it take to, to get, you know, to, to for someone like me to live the life that I have mm. enjoyed. And this year's been, you know, I have four brothers and a sister, and I have four sons and a daughter. And this year has been such an awakening and just everything. Watching my girl, her name's Megan, she's a freshman uh, in college, just, you know, moved away to college and uh, experiencing. Where is she going? She's going to UNH and um, wow. University of New Hampshire and Nice. So she's not too far away, and she's loving it so far, but watching her, you know, my kids have always taught me more than I've taught them, but watching the world and what's happening to us this year with her has been much more of a learning experience for me than it would have been without sharing it with her. I always would have stayed away from the word feminist, but... It's an important word, and it's like it really has to be a, a, an important part of. We have to know the stories, you know. We have to know why things that are political cannot just be something that works for you, or works for your family, or you thought works for you. Um, mm. And she's educated me more than I have educated her. It's been amazing in, in a lot of ways, you know. As far as the industry, the music industry, and women. In Nashville, the conversation is, why are there not more women played on the radio? But I'm in the songwriter community, and I write with just as many women as I do men. So it's like, I always feel like I could keep a safe distance from those things in the past, before this year, of course, because music doesn't really have a, a gender feelings you know described in a song it could uh, uh, it, it could be written by a man like in, in a writing room I guess what I'm trying to say is in a writing room it isn't like oh we have two men here and a woman it's like we have three songwriters here you know and I mm -hmm. think um, that's kind of been my road in music is I haven't seen a I haven't experienced a lot of issues with women not being treated fairly in my industry. But that doesn't mean it's not happening to other people in my industry and, of course, in every in all these other parts of industry and uh, all these, everyone else's bubbles. So this year has mm. been a, a getting out of the, the bubble, trying to figure out the best way to experience other people's stories and really listen. I didn't really answer your question very well, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally cool. Um, I remember... You used to come to WERS, and I, I would host the coffee house. Mm -hmm. The one time that I really remember Megan was just born, she was, like, on your back. Probably. And <laughs> now she's, like, in college, Now she's crazy. in college. <laughs> <sighs> um, also, I want to say that you, did you name her Megan after Megan Tui? 
Yes, she's named uh, Megan Elizabeth after Megan Elizabeth Tui. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. And it's funny. It's so funny. I mean, I love Megan so much. And she, Megan was, you know, my, was my pal. Like, she was in the front seat of my car forever, you know, driving to shows and doing shows together. And she taught me so much about, like, being young. I didn't, I got married when I was 19, so I didn't go to college. I didn't, like, have an apartment in Jamaica Plain. You know what I mean? So I would go to her apartment and be like, this is what happens? Like, you have a sofa? And, you know what I mean? Like, as I, I went from, like, my father's house to, to you know, having... I think we had two kids by the time we moved out of my dad's house and moved into our house. And it was like, I experienced so much through watching Megan Tui just as a 20-something in Boston, you know? Oh, She's yeah. just awesome. I love her. Yeah, me too. And also, is it a coincidence that you have four sons and one daughter and your daughter is the youngest? Did you just like... You're like, okay, I have a daughter now. I can stop having children. <laughs> well, actually, she's the second to youngest. So I had, we had three kids. Oh. Yeah, okay. this is what happened is we had three. Because sometimes people think I have two husbands. Well, well two marriages because there's a gap. That We had three kids, and we thought we were done. And then seven years later, we had Megan. And I didn't want her to be alone. So I was like, we have to have another kid. And so my youngest is a boy. (laughs) My youngest is David because he's my fourth boy. And in my family, my brother David was the fourth boy. So um, that's why his name is David. He's named after my brother. But um, yeah, it it is. But it is funny. Like she's when when I was traveling a lot when she was little, she'd be so sick of all the boys in the house and I would say, Megan, I have four brothers and I live, so you're okay. you're gonna be okay. <laughs> I feel for her. Yeah. <laughs> She's, done well. yeah. She's done well. She's done well. Okay, new album, Balladeer. I have some questions about a couple mm-hmm. of these songs. Okay. Is this my favorite Laurie McKenna record or is it Paper Wings and Halo? <laughs> Oh, I thought you were asking me. <laughs> yeah, that's the first question. The first is question. this my favorite Laurie McKenna yes, record? Yes, it is. It is. Okay, great. <laughs> I want to ask you about the title track, The Balladeer. It's a character song that is not you. You say, I don't know who she is, but I love her. I don't. Which you also posted on your Instagram recently that you say that too much to people, that you love them. I know, but I'm doing it. I'm sorry. I just love people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this character... You don't know who she is, but you love her. What do you love about her? Like, what breaks your heart about her? How do you relate to her? What happened was this this song came from the title. I saw, you know, we've seen that, the balladeer, we've seen it, you know, over the years. I've seen it so many times. And I saw it somewhere, and I was like, oh, that would be a great song title. And it started really quickly. Like, I think by the second line, I knew, well, she can't be me. Because <laughs> that would be too weird, and I write too much about myself anyway. But um, I think that the story that came out in her, I've seen in different people's stories. You know, the whole someone falls for you just as you are, you evolve, and the, you know, and then, you know, they want the old you back or, or something like that. And, or you grapple with finding joy, putting yourself out there, and then as soon as you do, you know, something something terrible happens, and <laughs> you have to go back to your safe ways of of being miserable. But I I really um, love writing 
character songs, and I have, I don't know if I have quite a few of them, but I have a few of them that I can think of, and I think that those people, when I see them, well, first Should of we all, name the character songs. It, it's oh, sure. The balladeer. Yeah. Wreck you. Wreck you is yes, but I didn't clearly see that person as clearly as other characters. Um, the other one that comes to mind is hardly speaking a word. Hardly speaking a word is such an old song, and wow, you you just went right back there. That's right, Paper <laughs> Wings did. and Halo. Um, well, Number Doors is a character song, and The Bird and the Rifle. And those are songs where I really did see, there's also a song I wrote with Drew Kennedy called uh, Rosa Jericho, which is very character-driven. And I just saw those, you know, characters so clearly, and... Um, I wanted her to have an evolution. I wanted her to ultimately know that she was okay as herself, you know, which is why she goes back to, you know, writing sad songs and um, and not being for everybody else. I don't know if it comes through necessarily in the song, but that's where where I saw her. I saw her having this journey of like. Um, falling in love and then getting pulled in all these different directions like you could do this you could do that you could travel the world you could be a big star and then ultimately her finding that she's okay just as her as her own beautiful balladeer herself <laughs> the song when you're my age um from reading about you it seems as though when you write a song that you're like okay tim mcgraw or little big town they're gonna do this song so I'll let them do this song, and then you might record a version. Like, Humble and Kind, you recorded a version. Mm -hmm. But when you're my age, I'm surprised that this song, you didn't save this song for, for like, a big super <laughs> country star because it's so goddamn good. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and you wrote it with the Love Junkies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love the story of how Hillary was like, no, we're not doing this. Yeah. And then Liz, did Liz sing the first? Like, she Liz, did. Like, she started singing, you'll outgrow your shoes, you'll outgrow your bed, you'll outgrow this house. The funny thing about that song is I had the the first verse and the, and the last verse. And there was no middle verse. And I had no chorus and I didn't know what to do. And as I, I was playing, it was started on piano. I was playing it on Liz's piano and they were across the room from me. And Liz started singing along with me, like, when it gets to um, like riding your bike out in the street and playing in the in the backyard, Liz was singing, and I remember Hillary looking at her like, "Have you heard this before? Like, how are you singing?" And Liz is like, "I know what she's gonna do. Like, I know her so well. I know what she's gonna do." <laughs> and um, and then I stopped because that was all I had. And Hillary's like, "No, you just gotta finish that." And Liz is like, "No, you'll outgrow your shoes. You'll outgrow your bed. You know, I know exactly where your brain's going." And then we were stuck again, and Hillary found the, you know, we can go back to when you're my age if we just say. She thought it was stupid. She's like, this is so dumb, but we could say, you'll always be my baby, even when you're my age. And when she said <laughs> it, we all cried. Like, we were like, what? What did you just say? <laughs> like, <laughs> and oh. the deal was sealed. And the deal was sealed. So I also read about the production process on that track, and it sounds very cool, like Dave Cobb heard it and was like let's make this a piano song you shouldn't play the guitar um and you also had a hard time like not crying when recording it 
Yeah, there's a video that um, Becky Fluke made for that song, and you can kind of she filmed the the first go round, and you can kind of see where I kind of lose it for a minute. But um, I mean, this is I mean, I've cried so many times singing songs. It's it's ridiculous. I should be over these things by now. But um, but it's funny that he. I think what Dave Cobb wanted to do in recording was he didn't want me to worry about playing guitar and he wanted to make sure that I was letting myself be as emotional as possible and just singing you know because mm. you're you're not at my, your hands aren't busy you don't know what to do with your hands you're just sitting there like okay I guess I just have to sing and plus the piano is so such an emotional instrument um but yeah it was I think we went through it a few times for sure because I I would sort of lose it and the other thing about that band is they're following me that's why there's so much space there because I couldn't breathe you know the first couple of times getting through and and it was and a, the it was deal a, was sealed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the, back to your original point about that song is Tim McGraw did hear that song very early on and I think he actually cut a version of that song but it is a five minute song and I talked to Tim a few times about it and he he was such a fan of it and so supportive, but eventually when I went in to record, I called and, you know, said, what's the deal with when you're my age? You know, what are you thinking, pal? And he was like, I, I just think you have to do it. And I don't know if, if Little Big Town heard it before I cut it, but, um, but Tim did and we did have, you know, some chats about that song. How do you think that writing songs has made you a better mom? Well, I think anybody that has an outlet where you are really piecing together the way you feel about something, like journaling or anything like that. I think it helps in every relationship you have. If you have, if you take time to sit down and, and really piece together how you feel about something. I mean, like I always kid, you know, my husband works for the gas company and I always kid him, kid around with him and think, say like, I just spent six hours with somebody like, pulling apart one emotion and putting it back together so it's like you know if you whatever you know my husband's job he doesn't get to sort of you know touch base with his emotions on a daily basis so Mm. much and we're really lucky that that we have this and so I think it's important for anybody to to take time and sort of maybe they don't write it down maybe they make art or something else and there's obviously a million ways to do this but I think um, those of us that get to sort of work in our emotions are are blessed in, in that way that we get to sort of pull them apart. I think being a mom has made me a better songwriter more than being a songwriter has made me be a better mom, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just made me pay attention more to being a person. One of my favorite Lori McKenna stories. So first of all, you're like an icon in Cambridge. <laughs> I've got two stories that demonstrate this. Once I was at the Kendall Cafe watching a songwriter play, and he was like, this is by a musician that I really love and respect. It's a song called Paper Wings. And I saw two people sit in the corner, and the guy whispered to the lady, Lori McKenna? It was Gillian Welch. <laughs> By the way, Paper Wings, they were thinking of, what were they thinking Uh of? Paper Wings and Halo. That's right. The second story is 
this is this is my favorite story. The time that you brought Mandy Moore to Club Passim. I forgot about to see Daryl Scott. To see Daryl Scott. Nobody uh-huh. knew who Mandy Moore was, and everyone was freaking out that Laurie McKenna was there. That is not true. <laughs> that is so not true. Swear to God. You gotta ask Matt Smith. That's a true story. That is funny. All this is leading up to can you talk about how nice Mandy Moore is? Oh my god. She's the greatest. She's the sweetest person. And I will say, um, she was one of the first people that, famous people that I spent time walking in public with. You know what I mean? And it's it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough gig being famous. Like I would never, ever want to have to worry about that. I feel so bad for famous people. <laughs> they can't really walk down the street mm. that much. Um, now they can if they have masks on, if they're paying, you know, being uh a good citizen but um mandy's the sweetest she's so talented she's such a hard worker she came a couple of times to stoughton to write for different albums and um and we just hit it off i mean she she's she actually has way more patience in songwriting than i do way more patience she'll spend (laughs) so much time just waiting and finding the right line and she also really could probably just do it all on her own but she enjoys the community of having a writing community and she enjoys that um that back and forth and that maybe an acting thing you know that you know that comes from that I'm not sure but she really could just do it all alone and she takes the time um to bring people in and share her experience with people and it's been a blast. Okay, tell me a story that's going to blow Marcarelli's mind. That's hard to do, you know. He knows pretty much all my stories, I think. Do you have a story that will blow Marcarelli's mind? I wonder if the Mandy Moore, Laurie McKenna, Passim story will blow his mind. Yeah, I didn't know. I think I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong about that story. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you this, and I probably have told Marcarelli this, that I think Daryl Scott should probably have a restraining order against me because every time I see him I'm like hi Daryl it's me <laughs> it's Laurie McKenna do you remember, do you remember me? me we wrote a couple of times together. he's just so good he's so good and she and she happened to be here writing and I was like you'll never believe who's playing at Passim Daryl Scott I mean come on you know okay uh Laurie McKenna will you do the lightning round oh yes I'm probably going to be terrible at this here we go Oh boy. First song you learned on the guitar. First song I learned on guitar was Neil Young, Only Love Can Break a Heart. What is your karaoke song? I don't have a karaoke song, but if I had a karaoke song, it would probably be uh, I Can't Make You Love Me. Can, is that a karaoke song? Is that karaokeable? Yes. It's just the best song in the whole world. So Mine is Fleetwood Mac Silver Spring. Oh, beautiful. Good choice. So, dogs or cats or something else? Dogs, 100%. Although we have a guinea pig that's about 10 years old, and he's the sweetest thing in the whole world. A 10-year-old guinea pig? Get yeah, I don't, I don't know how he's still alive. I think it's because we feed him, like, vegetables. I think they'll live forever if you feed them vegetables. Oh, and not pellets. Right. The pellets aren't good, that's a good call. We'll do another podcast about guinea pigs. <laughs> about your your guinea pig. It's actually a girl. Her name's Flo. 
it's a girl named Flo. Her name's Flo Taco because he she's my son's and he likes Flo from that commercial. So that's where that came from. Oh, <laughs> ten years ago. How do you take your coffee? Black. Wow. Favorite U.S. city? Favorite U.S. city? Boston. Has to be Boston. First album you bought with your own money? Oh, brilliant question. Um, Suzanne Vega. Uh, no, probably Police. I brought the. I bought all of the Police um, records on my own. I bet. Yeah. Does Jean like the part in Roxanne where Sting accidentally sits on the piano? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think he knows that part. You should play it for him. I will. Do you know that part? No, but now that you said that, I literally just vinyled up on that so we'll, we'll go check that out where is it at it's right at the beginning it's like bam 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 and then he goes blonk oh and then he laughs. i thought that was on purpose that's a mistake it was an accident oh i didn't know that that's a great story right yeah that's happy great. accident mm-hmm. first concert uh first concert was you two at the boston garden and i was literally in the very last row like back to the cement center stage very last row wow i can relate i also had similar seats to a u2 concert but probably a different one mm-hmm. yeah she would have been than, a, than a very very baby if ever born <laughs> was was it the joshua tree it was uh it was probably in like 84 so whatever amazing yeah yeah what is your dream collaboration living or dead Either. Either. Um, leave on helm. Flying or invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Last one. <laughs> Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh, the most beautiful place I've ever visited. I love, we took a family vacation to Italy, loved everything about it, but if I had to just pick one spot, it would be Zion Canyon. Nice. Gorgeous, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Lori McKenna, for doing the lightning round. You did great. (laughs) I'm so bad at that stuff. (laughs) No, it was awesome. And thank you for talking to me for so long. Oh, my God, thank you. Being such an icon and <laughs> also would you and dave cobb and chris delmhorst do a re-recording of fireflies just like you did on the respond record oh my god that's a great idea i should try to make that happen that's a good idea because it's not on spotify it isn't i don't know these things <laughs> it's not the respond version is not on spotify but I wonder why whoever's is in charge. Yeah. Uh, we, I should try to make that happen. I'll put that on my list. Okay. That'd be fun. Thanks, Lori. <laughs> Thank you. Basic Folk This Week was produced by Laura McCarthy, who also offers her social media help. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is proud to be on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy House, and... I'm talking to you from the past, so I'm crossing my fingers that uh, we are in a better place in our country than where we have been the past four years. But also, I am watching a stink bug crawl across the table as I record this in my attic, so that could also be where we are. All right, I will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening, and take care of each other. Okay, bye. Bye.